The scripture for today's sermon comes from Mark chapter 8, verses 34 through 38. The word of God speaks to us. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes into the glory of his Father with the holy angels. This is God's word to us. Am I on? There I am. I was on the whole time, which is terrifying because that means that you maybe heard me singing. Um, but are we good sound men and they had me muted. So that's always when I go to the bathroom during church or um, am singing during worship, there's just that constant anxiety that my mic might be unmuted and it can go horribly wrong at any moment. Um, it's good to be with you guys. Happy October. Um, my name is David, if you don't know me. I am one of the pastors here. I get to preach uh, fairly often and love to be with here with you guys. I want to pray for you, invite you to pray for me, and we're going to continue in the book of Mark. So let's, let's pray with and for one another in this moment. Father, I thank you for the gift that is this morning. And as we prayed together, even as a, a ministry team and, and the, just the service team earlier today, this is our hope um, that, that we wouldn't say that was... That was a great time of singing songs. What a great band. Or that was a, a great sermon. Or even th those were great people that were so kind and loving. What we want to, to see and know and experience more than anything this morning is the truth that we have such a great Savior. And that we would leave with wonder in our hearts and worship on our lips. Because you are just so awesome, Jesus. We pray this in your name. God's people said... Amen. Well, it just so happens that today, uh, October 3rd, um, two, two just beautiful birthdays are, are something I want to celebrate this morning. Um, the first is actually this congregation. So seven years ago, today, we had our first service at, uh, on campus. Yeah, that's worth clapping about. I think we have a picture. You can see that we met uh, for the first time in Constitution Hall at UCO. I fell down those steps at least twice. Um, and so that was a sweet time, and uh, that's noteworthy. And so, I don't know, like McBride children, I don't know if you guys are going out to lunch or, you know, you're going to have like time at home afterwards, but just tell your parents when the waiter comes and asks if you want dessert, yes, we're celebrating the church's birthday. So just try it. If it doesn't work, I, I tried to help you. Um, the second thing um, that's frankly more important to me is that today is my youngest's birthday, Deacon Charles Adair. He is the most confident, most self-assured, coolest person in our family. And, uh, and he's three, and if you're a parent, you know, everybody talks about the terrible twos, and we know that that's not true. It's three that is really scary. So be praying for us. Uh, but he's, he's super fun. And one of the things that's just really noticeable about him, and his Nana and Papa will attest to this, is like every day he's more and more vocal. And he's just saying cute things and things that like, you know, are interesting to me and would, I know that they wouldn't be interesting to you. So I won't go too deep into like the fun things that he says, but one of the things that he says that's extra cute, and he says it in particular to his mom, is follow the leader. 
he will grab my wife by her finger and say, follow the leader, mama. And that means just like, he thinks he's in charge. And so you're, you're following the leader and he's going to take Anna to show her something. And he, of course, is the only person in my 39 years of life that I've ever heard use that phrase, follow the leader. Um, we all say follow, uh, follow my leader, excuse me. That's what, what Deacon says. I, I don't know if I got that wrong, but he says, follow my leader, mommy. Um, and so it, it, uh, it struck me um, in an extra sweet way when I was reading a commentary this week where uh, uh, this is, I'll just read it for you. It's Alan Cole in the Tyndale New Testament commentary. He was writing about the text that we're about to dig into, and he said this, the thought is simple enough and plain to every child playing follow my leader, of which there is only one rule, that no follower shirks going to any place where the leader has gone first. And so this text that we're going to dig into is, is really weighty. And it, it's going to strike us, I think particularly in the context and the culture of, of American Western Christianity where the demands are often distilled and watered down. And there's a false gospel that's often preached and that we can even, if we can recognize how explicitly wrong it is, can implicitly believe that Christianity is primarily about a, our pursuit of a comfort And Jesus is going to plainly, in a beautiful way, lay out what it means to follow him in these verses. See, we're right in the middle of our study of the book of Mark. And we've seen thus far in this book that that Jesus of Nazareth, he is the son of God. He's the savior of the world. He came to live for us. He came to show compassion and power, but he came first and foremost to proclaim salvation and a kingdom. He just revealed last week, if you were here, that he is truly the promised savior of the world from God, but he's, he's a different type of king than people expected. He's a king that's going to suffer and die. He's a king that's going to willingly be rejected, lay his life down, yet he won't stay dead. He'll conquer death and rise again. And he's going to have a kingdom that's never going to end. And here, as we're in the midst of this turn and transition of the book of Mark, where we're we're in a turn from focusing on the answer to the question, who is Jesus, to now seeing the beauty of the answer of the question and what has he come to do, Jesus here in this text is going to tell us, what does it look like to follow this king? What does it look like to be a citizen in his kingdom? How do we follow Jesus is the question at hand. And if you're here this morning, you're exploring Christianity, you're considering following him, being a Christian. That's a really important, crucial question. What does it mean to follow Jesus? And if you've been following Jesus for a while, you consider yourself a Christian, it's still a really crucial question. Do I still grasp, do I have a clear view of truly what it means to follow Jesus? See, I suspect if we were to like get a camera and a microphone and go around the, the city of Edmond and ask people on campus at UCO or, or in downtown Edmond or in the halls of North or Santa Fe or Memorial High School, hey, what do you think it means to follow Jesus? I suspect that some of those answers might begin with the phrase, well, for me it means, to follow Jesus for me it means, And what we really need 
to hear and know is not just a personal opinion or perspective of what it means to follow Jesus. We need to hear what it means to follow Jesus according to Jesus. Because isn't that what really matters? We need to hear what he has to say. And here Jesus tells us. So let's look at the answer together. We're going to go through these verse by verse, and we're going to go through in three points. And so the first thing I want us to see is this, the call to follow Jesus. That's how Jesus begins, the call to follow Jesus. Let's look at verse 34. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he, Jesus, said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Now, it's noteworthy off the bat that Jesus is he's beginning by calling the crowd. This isn't just a, a message and a command and a charge to his leaders, his disciples, the 12. There's something foundational that he wants everyone who seeks to follow him to hear. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. So the first thing that Jesus says is, hey, to be a Christian, to follow me, that means a life of self-denying. And I don't want to be hyperbolic, I don't want to exaggerate, but truly and objectively, I don't know if there's a less popular message, right? If there's like a cultural moment that can be defined right now, it is the opposite of self-denial. I mean, it is unthinkable to say, hey, my deepest desires and my personal longings to not move towards those. I mean, that, that seems to be the ultimate wrong to tell somebody that they need to deny themselves in this moment, not just in our country, but in our city. In his book, Disappearing Church, Mark Sayer, who's just a really smart pastor, he says it this way. He says, what we're experiencing is not the erratic Uh, eradication of God from the Western mind, but rather the enthroning of the self as the greatest authority. God is increasingly relegated to the role of servant and massager of the personal will. See, people, I think in the West in this moment, are not opposed to the idea of the existence of God. They're open to God existing. But more often than not, they're really opposed to any idea of a God with any kind of authority, a God that would not agree with their desires, their will, their ways. People are tolerant of God as long as he doesn't make any demands on their life. And it's easy for me to look in, you know, songs and culture and podcasts and see that. The hard work that we need to do in here is to, to look ourselves in the mirror, look our, our, ourselves, our soul in the mirror of God's word and examine ourselves and say, where is that attitude towards God alive in me? And I think for each and every one of us, it's present more than we might realize. And Jesus is saying, hey, to be a Christian means denying ourselves, saying that our life is laid down, it's been given to God, that we're embracing the authority of Jesus in my life, and we're denying ourselves because if I don't deny myself, then I I am the, as one poem says, captain of my soul, a shipwreck is inevitable. 
Jesus doesn't stop merely at denying ourselves. He goes on to say, let him deny himself and take up his cross. Jesus says following him, being a Christian, means that we take up a cross. And frankly, one of the things that I love about Edmund is that crosses are everywhere, right? I don't spend a lot of time on the west side of town, that kind of like nebulous is this Oklahoma City Edmund no one knows you know we, we just you know but I was this my kids have soccer practice over there so I've been going over there regularly and it's like they're barbecue joints with three crosses on memorial just huge I'm like that's that's awesome I was driving north on Penn there's an open field and there's somebody put like an epic wooden cross in the middle of this field and that, like I, I love that I love that and then we see it in, on bumper stickers we see it on necklaces If you've been around Edmond for a while, you know that our city seal has four sections and there's something missing on one of those sections because uh, until the late 90s, there was a cross there, right? And the city was sued um, and it was was taken off. And so now it's, it's just blank. And if you've been around, we all know that's where the cross ought to go. You can go to around the corner. Um, great service, okay breakfast, and they have an original city seal with a, a big cross. I love around the corner, actually. It's just like the ultimate dive, greasy Edmund breakfast spot, but it's just worth going in there to see the original Edmund seal, and you see that cross right there. And we even have it in our, our, our verbiage, our expressions. Thanksgiving's coming up, and I got to go to my brother-in-law's house this year, and time to bear my cross. Right? <laughs> For Lent, I'm giving up Netflix. As a, we all have a cross to bear, right? You know? First century Jews, they had a very different relationship with the cross. And particularly, this crowd and these disciples that Jesus called to himself in this moment, just the very mention of a cross would have sent a chill up their spine and struck them with a sense of horror. They all had likely experienced a Saturday at the, uh, excuse me, a Friday at the farmer's market right? They're buying bread and and vegetables and fruit to prepare for the Sabbath, and they're hearing the hustle and bustle, and yet they sense the atmosphere change, and, and a hush goes over the crowd because Roman soldiers are walking through, and they're flanking a man who's carrying a crossbeam on his way to his execution, To them, the cross was a symbol of pain and fear and shame, cruelty, torture, death. 71 BC, some of us have seen the movie. A slave named Spartacus led a rebellion against Rome, lasted for two years. And in in 71, when it was quenched, on the road to Rome, the empire crucified 6,000 rebel slaves stretched 120 miles. A hundred years later, when these words of Jesus were shared for the first time in the Gospel of Mark to the early church, they knew crucifixion. Many of their friends being persecuted, even family members, were experiencing the cross. These words of Jesus weren't just merely metaphorical, they were quite literal. Recall that the Apostle Peter is the primary source 
of this book. John Mark was kind of like his right-hand guy, his scribe, his, his partner in ministry. And church history tells us that Peter eventually was arrested for preaching Jesus. And in the summer of 64 AD, he was let out, let out, let out of a Roman prison cell in Rome and led to his crucifixion. And church history tells us that he so honored Jesus that his request was that he wasn't worthy to be crucified in the same manner as his savior and king, and so they crucified him upside down. Church tradition also tells us that very same day the apostle Paul was let out of his prison cell in Rome and beheaded. This was this first wave of severe persecution that the emperor Nero was laying on the early church. And what happened to Peter and Paul happened to nearly and virtually all of the 12 apostles. Andrew was crucified. James was put to death with a sword by Roman soldiers. Bartholomew was skinned and beheaded. Thomas was killed by spears. John was spared martyrdom. He just was tortured and exiled on an island. This was reality for men that were hearing this from the mouth of Jesus. It was reality for the early church. It's not just history, it's present reality. According to Open Doors USA, nearly 5,000 brothers and sisters in Christ in 2020 around the world were killed because of their love for Jesus in the Middle East, in Africa, in India, Southeast Asia. To be a Christian in their context came with real and comes with real extreme cost. And with all that before us, I think in the the safety and the freedom of Edmond, Oklahoma, it's a danger for us to assume that this scripture and, and this charge from the mouth of Jesus to pick up our cross and carry it, it means everything to people that might literally be called to live out a death because of their love for Christ. But it doesn't really apply to us, but that's not the case. There is a cost. To follow Jesus according to Jesus means there's always a cost. We too, though it may look differently, are daily called to self-deny and to pick up a cross and sacrifice in love for Christ Jesus. See, Jesus says being a Christian means following him. Christianity means literally that we take our position behind Jesus. We follow my leader. We listen to him. His will trumps our will. We embrace his vision and and his, his view of our sexuality. We embrace his vision and his view for our marriage and parenting or singleness. We embrace his vision and his view for how we steward our time and our money and our treasure and our homes. We embrace his vision of how we feel towards people that hate us. There's simply no such thing as a Christian who isn't following Jesus. That's what it means to be a Christian. And Jesus says, hey, if you are following me, don't expect an easy time. It's not about comfort and consumption and having your dreams and will met. It's about 
pouring yourself out and walking the road that I'm walking to live out the dreams of my kingdom and my will. Bonhoeffer famously put it this way. When Jesus calls a man, he bids him come and die. William Lane, in his commentary, The Gospel of Mark, he writes this. Jesus stipulated that those who wish to follow him must be prepared to shift the center of gravity in their lives from a concern for self to reckless abandon to the will of God. The central thought is self, in self-denial is disowning of any claim that may be urged by the self, a sustained willingness to say no to oneself in order to be able to say yes to God. I thought of Copernicus, right? This, this one moment in time where there was a, a geocentric view of our galaxy that the earth was the center and then there was this revelation and reality that no, everything doesn't revolve around us but we revolve around this powerful source of life, the sun. And that's what it's like to follow Jesus, to say, I'm not the center anymore. I realize that he is. He is the source of life and I am revolving around him. I orbit him. He's the center. It's about him. So what does that mean for us? It means a willingness to make sacrifices with our time, our money, our spiritual gifts to continue the mission Jesus started. Taking up our cross means looking at our time and our talent and our treasure, all as gifts from God to be used for his glory and the good of others. It's quite practically saying, look at my time. How am I spending it? Look at my money. How am I giving it? Look at my gifts. How am I sharing them? Is there sacrifice there for the glory of God? Carrying our cross means putting the interests and needs of others before our own, anchored in a desire to glorify God and genuinely love them. Dads, examine the culture of your home. As your kids begin to grow, when they're away from college, their first month, will they reflect as they miss you? And perhaps they're reading through Mark chapter 8 and say, that reminds me of my dad. He picked up his cross. He served. He sacrificed to glorify God and to lead us. Carrying our cross means staying true to God's word even when culture is going a hundred miles in a different direction and saying, I trust and believe and follow God's word even if that obedience will cost me in the eyes of coworkers or neighbor, family, friends, even if people hate me for it. This is what it means to be called to follow Jesus. That's one. Second thing, let's look at the, the cost to follow Jesus cost to follow Jesus. Look at verse 35 with me. And Jesus says, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? When I was studying this passage this week, uh, one of the moments I just happened to be in my friend Charlie's office and he has this really cool piece of art 
and the art, I think I have a picture of it, it shows just a portion of one of my favorite poems, which is in fact a, a beautiful Puritan prayer. It's called the Valley of Vision. I think I've shared it with you guys before, and I'm certain I'm going to share it with you again. But I just want to read a portion from the, the Valley of Vision. The prayer says, let me learn by paradox that the way down is the way up, that to be low is to be high, that the broken heart is the healed heart, that the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit, that the repenting soul is the victorious soul, that to have nothing is to possess all, that to bear the cross is to wear the crown, that to give is to receive, that the valley is the place of vision. I think the author of this poem must have had on his heart, among other places in scripture, Jesus' words here in Mark 8. Because Jesus here is sharing this great paradox. He's giving us this beautiful surprise. He's helping us understand the call to follow him. Jesus holds up the, the, the costs of following him so we can understand his call. And this is beautiful. Remember the beginning. He calls the crowd. Everyone is called to follow Jesus. All are freely invited in grace. But the answer to the call to, to actually receive that free gift, there's a cost that means giving everything, giving your very life. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. The word life here, uh, the Greek is psyche, and it, it can mean at times in Scripture like your, your literal, your body, your physical life, but most often it means something uh, along the lines of being, your, your core self. The most common translation is soul. If you're reading um, maybe a, a different version of Scripture, it might say soul here instead of life. So Jesus is saying, hey, there's a way to have your physical life taken from you, stolen from you, and, and yet you hold on to your soul. But there's also a way that you hold on to your physical life. And in doing so, you do so in such a way that you lose your soul. That there's a way to go about life where you're concerned with holding on selfishly and jealousy. You're concerned with, with keeping yourself from others. You're consumed with your rights and your privileges and your needs and your wants. And you live like a black hole, just bringing in and consuming and taking. And if you live like that, Jesus is saying, that's not life at all. You're, you're losing your life. This is death, but if you give your life away in love to God, if you give your life away in love to others, there's a paradox that's beautiful that actually in laying down your life, that's the place that you, you find it. Eternal life, true life. What Jesus said is abundant life. And Jesus teaches this lesson. He drives it home. He's holding up this truth by asking one of the most important questions, most striking questions, solemn, serious questions, weighty questions ever asked in history. And what's so hard is that we've heard it so often, it doesn't strike us with the weight and the magnitude that it ought. So let's try best we can and ask the Holy Spirit to help us hear this question with fresh ears and an open heart. Jesus asks, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world 
and forfeit his soul. And just imagine the disciples there being close to him. And, and these guys had backgrounds as tax collectors, as small business owners, fishermen. And so they knew the art of the deal. They had done some negotiating in their time. And Jesus is saying, hey, let me, let me uh, hold up for you a scenario. You're at the table. A deal is being proposed. And the deal is you can have the world. That sounds appealing. Everything, everywhere, every treasure, your heart's deepest desires, anything you could ever want, it can all be yours. What price are you willing to pay? What are you willing to give? And the ask is you can have all of that, just give your soul. And according to Jesus, that's a bad deal. To gain the world but lose the freedom to love God and love people what good is everything in the entire world if, if you don't know love? Jesus tells a story to explain this in the Gospel of Luke in verse 12, and it's a parable about a man that uh, is immensely successful, which isn't a problem in and of itself. He's a great businessman, and he's incredibly successful, and he has a killer harvest, which again, that's awesome. Nothing wrong with that. But where the danger comes in is when he sees his success and he sees his abundance and he sees his gain and he sees that, that in reality he is more than he could ever need. He says to himself, I, I have had an immense harvest. Look at all I have gained. These barns I have are looking kind of shabby all of a sudden. I'm going to tear them down, build some that are twice as big, and I will spend the rest of my life drinking, hanging out, celebrating. I'm set. And, and Jesus, in the story, he literally calls this man a fool as he tells the end of the parable in Luke 12, verse 20, he says, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you, then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich towards God. The point is this, everything in the world, its treasure is temporary. Our souls aren't temporary, they're eternal. That's the difference. And one soul is far too valuable even to give in exchange for everything in the world. That should strike us in a way where we're asking ourselves right now, how do I feel about my soul? Because we're seeing here, we're getting a glimpse of how Jesus feels about our soul. And it's only through the, the life and the love of Jesus that we get a glimpse of how precious and costly our souls are, right? I was thinking of that, my favorite Christmas song, Long Lay the World in Sin and Hair Pining, Till He Appeared and the Soul Felt Its Worth. What's the soul worth? According to Jesus, it's worth the Son of God leaving the glory and the splendor of heaven and taking on flesh and becoming a poor baby born in a manger. It's, it's worth living a childhood as a refugee in Egypt, as a part of a family who lives in poverty. It's worth living a life of obscurity in a moment in history 
that was particularly difficult and learning a hard trade and, and being a carpenter. It's worth beginning a ministry where you're not glorified, but you give and you show compassion and you love and you pour yourself out daily for the good of others. It's worth willingly marching to a cross to lay down his life. It's worth, your soul is worth Jesus suffering physically beyond imagination. Your soul is worth Jesus suffering relationally in a heartbreaking way, abandoned by friends, rejected and betrayed by ones he loved. Your soul is worth spiritual suffering for the only time in history, the Son of God not knowing the communion of the Father and the Spirit because he is taking on the wages of the sin of our soul. That is how precious Jesus counts a soul. Let's quickly look at our final verse today. The confidence to follow Jesus. Verse 38, for whoever is ashamed of me, Jesus says, and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the son of man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his father with his holy angels. Jesus is reminding us and revealing to us a constant danger to his followers. Just under the glaring eye of a world or a culture that doesn't believe, we can, each of us, be tempted to be ashamed of Jesus and, and what he has to say. The image that came to my mind this week was of the angsty, immature teenager, right, that wants mom to drop him off a block away from school because he doesn't want to be seen with her. And we, too, can say, hey, Jesus, pull over here. I'm good walking the rest of the way. I don't want us to be seen together. And we might not explicitly say it this way, but what we carry in our hearts is that we're embarrassed, we're ashamed, we want to hide our devotion and our connection to Jesus. And I've felt that way before, I suspect. You've felt that way before, and how broken are we that the best person ever who is at the center of the best news ever is something we feel the need to ever hide. In, in Jesus' warning, there's an invitation to follow him in a, in a way of assured confidence. As Paul writes at the beginning of Romans, for I am not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God that, what, that brings salvation to everyone who believes. But Jesus is, is here saying, hey, there's a day coming. I've come once. There's a day when I will come again. And the name he uses for himself in this moment is Jesus' favorite name for himself in Scripture. The name he uses most for himself, he says, the Son of Man. And that uh, first appears in Scripture in Daniel, Daniel chapter 7. There's this Old Testament prophecy about this powerful figure that will come who's divine, and yet he's the son of man because he's human. And he's exalted. He has all authority, all power, all glory, and all people from every nation worship him. And he brings a kingdom that will never end. And that is a prophecy about Jesus Christ. 
And so he loves this name for himself, and he's saying, hey, there's a, there's a day coming where the, where the Son of Man will come, and if you've lived a life that's marked by shame of this king upon the second coming, he'll be ashamed of you on that day. And this, this is hard truth and real warning from Jesus, and perhaps now, like me this week, if you are a follower of Jesus, you're you're feeling convicted, you're feeling heartbroken that there are times that with family or friends or neighbors or coworkers, you shirk away from following your leader. You ask to be dropped off before you get to the party. You hide your devotion to the Lord. And so what do we do right now if that's in our heart? that if in sin or immaturity or foolishness, we've in the past been ashamed and denied Jesus. Well, I just want to, in closing, take one minute to remind us of, of Peter's story. Remember we talked about his boldness. His, his, he, he was so refused to deny Jesus that he gave his life down and he so was humbled and, and glorified Jesus that he didn't even want to die in the same manner of his Savior. This is a man who stood up in Acts 2, in front of thousands and boldly proclaimed the first sermon about the resurrection. And the Holy Spirit working in him and through him set a fire that was the church. Peter stood before kings and emperors and and without shame boldly proclaimed Jesus as risen. But before any of those things happened, there's a moment that we'll come to in Mark where one night he was warming himself by a fire. And it was the same night that Jesus was being falsely accused and led to his execution. And a little girl recognizes Peter as a Galilean and says, hey, aren't you a friend? Aren't you a follower of Jesus? And Peter, in in the most vehement terms he can, three times denies Jesus. He literally says, I do not know this man whom you speak. That's not the end of his story. One of my favorite moments in the entire Bible happens over a breakfast. It's John 21, and the resurrected, risen king of glory, Jesus, shows up on the beach when Peter's fishing. And Peter sees him, and he jumps in the water and swims to him because he can't even wait for the boat to dock. And he sits with Jesus Once again, Peter's by a fire. And for every time Peter denied Jesus three times, Jesus in love and grace invites Peter to affirm his love for Jesus. Do you love me, Peter? Do you love me, Peter? Do you love me, Peter? And he's restored and he's given mercy and he's entrusted with with mission to lead Christ Church. If you're heartbroken because you've been ashamed of Jesus, hear the truth of Scripture as we close. This is Lamentations 3, verse 22 and 23. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies, they never come to an end. They're new every morning. Great 
is your faithfulness. If we've been ashamed, even in this moment, in prayer, we can run to Jesus, and he's waiting in grace and mercy to lead us in repentance and confession, and once again affirming our love for him. Let's stand and pray.